Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, we are in episode 18 of Parallax. Uh, this has been uh, quite the year Um for us at Parallax, um, we started uh, this, this show in 2019, and um, you know the year has gone by so quickly. And I've had the uh, you know distinct privilege of interviewing uh, so many exemplary and legendary cardiologists on the show. This is the finale show for this year, um, and you know when we were um, discussing uh, what the theme should be for this show, uh, you know our team. Uh, recommended to do a roundup um, of um, what has happened in cardiovascular medicine and cardiovascular diseases worldwide uh, with all the new data that that have come out um, on multifarious disease conditions that we see as cardiologists um, on a day-to-day basis. And then, you know, we um, also discussed as to who should do it. And, um, you know, I think that the guest who I have um, with me on the show uh, today, you know, clearly was the winner uh, when we were picking up, you know, who, who we should get uh, on the show to, to help us round up uh, the year for us. Um, so it is my absolute honor, um, a privilege and, a, and pleasure uh, to welcome on the show Dr. Niger. Um, Sukh Niger is a consultant cardiologist. He's an interventional cardiologist at Imperial College in London. And um, you know, we've been following each other on Twitter and, um, you know, it was my distinct privilege and pleasure to actually see him in person this year at TCT, um, which was when we, we connected and, you know, we decided that we would do a show together. Um, so, uh, Sok, welcome on the show. Thank you so much, Anker. It's a real privilege to be here. Um, I was uh, really uh, so glad to get your invitation to come on the show. I've been listening to it and I've been really impressed with uh, what you've been doing. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, thanks for listening and thank you for all the support and also for sharing, um, you know, our existence with uh, the, the Twitter world. Um, so, you know, before we uh, get started on, on the Roundup episode, um, would love for you to talk a um, little bit more about yourself and, uh, you know, your background and, you know, what was your journey into uh, becoming who you are now? Uh, our, our audience would would be uh, very interested in, in th- that aspect as well. Well, uh, that's a super um, super big question. Um, uh, I've uh, I'm an interventional cardiologist. I've um, I grew up in England. I was born in the UK, and I grew up in uh, England, very close to London. And uh, I have what many in the in the US would consider a very middle class background. I, my father was what you guys refer to as a blue collar worker. 
Uh, my mother was a, uh, sec a secretary in a uh, doctor's surgery um, for primary care doctor. And uh, they worked very hard. They put me through school and uh, went to a very normal, modest school. And uh, I went to uh, university. I went to University of Bristol, which uh, is a, um, uh, a very good university in the United Kingdom. And then I came down to came back to London, uh, where I did all of my um, internal medicine. I rotated through a lot of the prestigious places in London. There, there, there used to be a pathway in London that you could go between all the various hospitals and uh, there was a clear path if you wanted to be a cardiologist. Um, and so I, I went through all the different jobs. I worked at Harefield, I worked at Brompton, I worked at the Hammersmith. Um, and then uh, I became a uh, registrar or a, what you guys would call a fellow, I suppose. And um, during this time, I got the real uh, academic bug. And I came across a fellow who you may be familiar with called um, Daryl Francis, Professor he, uh, Professor Daryl Francis, who he wasn't a professor at the time. And um, he took me under his wing and we worked on a number of projects. And then I started a PhD under uh, his supervision uh, together with uh, Justin Davis. And uh, you may have heard of Justin. So it was um, a really unusual time because uh, he was also still also a fellow at the time. He was a little bit more senior than I was. And I joined uh, colleagues of mine, uh, Shai Sen and Ricardo Petraco. And we ju just happened to get quite lucky because Justin was in the process of developing something called IFR, instantaneous wave-free ratio, which is a physiological parameter and um, uh, for you know detecting coronary stenosis and ass assessing its significance. And we worked incredibly hard, and this was a technology that then ended up being licensed by a company called Volcano, uh, now part of Philips. And then that kind of really set us on a particular path where we, we just did, you know, a huge number of studies. So we did a lot of basic science. I, I spent a long time in front of a computer programming things in the background, uh, as did my colleagues. And uh, my particular um, area was that I um, developed the uh, co-registered pullback so if you've ever used an IFR and you've pulled a wire back and you've plotted uh, the pullback trace, um, this was something that I spent a long time working on. Uh, and um, following my PhD, I then did interventional fellowship. Uh, and then now I'm in attending um, in, in, at the Hammersmith Hospital, uh, which is part of Imperial College, which is where all the cardiology services are. And I also uh, work at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, which is a, uh, a very different kind of hospital. It's uh, what we consider as in the UK as secondary care. It's principally um, uh, perhaps a larger population of people, but broader uh, disease process. So I have an interesting mix of seeing uh, very general cardiology, lots of interventional cardiology in secondary care, as well as seeing really complex things at the Hammersmith whilst at the same time trying to juggle uh, some component of academia um, and manage fellows and uh, work alongside uh, my fantastic peers, such as uh, Shai Sen, Ricardo, and Rasha Alami. Um, and we're kind of forming the, the, uh, the face of the Hammersmith now, which is a real change because we're, we're all much, um, we're of the same age and we've come through at the same time. So it's, a, it's like a totally different face to the hospital than before. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's fascinating. You know, I mean, some of the names you've uh, just shared with us uh, would be places um, where I'd, I'd love to visit. I mean, I, I obviously have have seen a lot of research um, being published from those hospitals. You know, hospitals like uh, 
Royal Brompton and oh and yeah, Hampton. absolutely yeah. You know, you know, even Chelsea, Westminster, Westminster. I mean, I, I these are all um, very well established names in in the academic uh, world of cardiovascular medicine. I'm, I'm sure you're aware. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a real privilege to work in all these places. There, um, uh, uh, London's a slightly unusual place. It's a very cosmopolitan, metropolitan place, um, and it's great to work in in these places because you get a balance of um, lots of different types of patients. And ultimately, what you want as a young cardiologist is just sheer volume of cases. And and we're very fortunate to uh, to work in places which have that. Yes, you know, I so I, I've I was in London in in 2018. Um, you know, that's when I started my uh, masters at the London School of Economics. It's an executive program, and it was the first time I actually I've been to London a couple of times before, but I haven't really stayed in London. So it was the first time I actually stayed in London for about a couple of weeks, um, and you know, got a chance to you know explore the city a little bit on the weekend. Um, and you know, what really struck me, you know, obviously I've known London as a very cosmopolitan city, um, and, and a city with, uh, you know, multiple ethnicities, great food, um, also obviously a lot to see a lot of history. Uh, but I think what really struck me was, you know, how organic the, the city is, you know, it's, 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 you mean disorganized, <laughs> that's a polite way of saying disorganized. <laughs> Yeah. No, you know, I said not 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 disorganized. You know, I think there's a there's just an organic flavor to the place, which you know it makes it a lot more, you know, special. It just makes it very natural. Yeah, um, it's it, yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the you, the cities in the in North America are planned and and designed in a particular way, uh, which they're designed for convenience um, and for uh, for getting people from A to B. London's definitely not like that. It, it, traveling across London. It uh, doesn't matter where you're going, it'll take an hour. Um, and uh, whether it's by car, uh, by train, uh, by using the tube or any of these other forms of transport, it's just, you know, it's a big city and it's sprawling and it can be tricky. So uh, it's an interesting place to live and work. It's unfortunately incredibly expensive, um, which, you know, has its own, uh, which has its own pressures. But uh, we are blessed with the fact that there are so many good hospitals, plus uh, lots of super bright people. And the one thing that we really count our lucky stars for every single day is that our fellows are absolutely wonderful. So we've we've had some really, really fantastic fellows who produced some amazing work and uh, continue to do so. So you would have seen things from uh, fellows such as James Howard or Yusuf Ahmed or Chris Cook. And these guys have continued to really push the envelope forward and and we we try and create an environment that you know we're supporting them and pushing them forward, uh, because ultimately, uh, if they're doing well, then the whole team is doing well, and that that's how we try and engender that process in in our in our centre. Yes, no, that's um, very heartening to hear. You know, I think um, you know I'm in the early career phase, and I, I remember being a fellow, you know, not too long ago. Um, you know, shortly will be three years. Um, you know, but it's it's so important for. Uh, you know, faculty, you know, young faculty um, or established faculty to continue to harness, um, you know, the uh, the energy that fellows bring uh, to to a program or to a place. And, you know, they're, they're brimming with ideas and they're obviously very energetic. They want to make a name for themselves and uh, they just want to dive deep into the academic world. And I think that's what also keeps the faculty very engaged. 
and you know very young and very involved i mean that's how i've always perceived um you know the advantages um of an academic place uh, would you agree yeah absolutely i think um when you're a fellow you have a degree of naivety you don't um you don't understand the limitations of things and that's uh, it's actually a good thing to have because you're willing to uh, to try something that other people will have dismissed. I think as you get older, you get a little bit more cynical. Um, so it's actually, it's good to have fresh uh, new young people come. Um, and you know, we've had, uh, I just had yesterday, uh, some new people coming to, to pursue PhD ideas. And um, so it's an exciting time to try and to find projects for them. And we're very lucky because uh, people like Professor Francis are very supportive um, and try and structure our program uh, so we, we support the academic component. But at the same time, we're, we're very keen for our guys to you know, become clinically excellent. And for, for myself as well, uh, you know, when we're doing cases, we want to do complex cases. We want to try the latest techniques. We go to meetings, we pick up on new techniques, we share ideas. You mentioned Twitter earlier. We, we learn so much by sharing things with each other. And uh, then, you know, it's important for us to try it and then for our fellows to try it as well. So I think it's a, a, a circular thing where everyone feeds back into each other and, and helps improve what we do. Yes, um, I, I completely agree. Um, so, you know, moving forward, mm. um, you know, let's let's dive in um, to 2019 for cardiovascular medicine and, um, you know, probably begin the conversation with uh, the first major meeting of the year, which was uh, the American College of Cardiology meeting. Yeah, in New, New Orleans. Yeah, absolutely. So this, I mean, what a year overall, Ankur. It's some amazing big studies presented throughout the year, um, really altering the face of cardiology, I would say. Yes, uh, you know, I'm, um, so it started, uh, you know, I think on the on a very high note with ACC, and uh, you know, the, the the two studies which were heavily anticipated. Um, I think recruitment was very prompt. And uh, I think, uh, you know, kudos to the investigators uh, who uh, made these trials happen. Uh, you know, they both were New England Journal of Medicine papers. Um, you know, we're talking about the low risk TAVR studies, you know, partner three and the, the Evolu low risk. Um, so yeah. I'll, I'll have you, I'll have you, um, you know, sort of walk the audience and listenership through these studies and and tell us what you think about them. Yeah, so these are um, uh, altering the, the paradigm of treating patients with TAVI or TAVR, as you would say. Um, and the, the key points of the study was to alter the risk of the patients that went into them. So the previous partner studies um, had very high uh, surgical risk, very high STS score, uh, very high surgical scores. But partner three and the Evolute low risk uh, study basically took much lower risk patients, not necessarily younger, but lower risk. And what they were able to demonstrate uh, in, in this cohort patients with really low STS scores, um, I think partner three was down to kind of less than the STS score of four um, uh, in an average of around 70, was that there was a big reduction in death, all-cause stroke and rehospitalization. And in partner three, we're seeing uh, rates in the in the TAVA group of around eight and a half percent versus fifteen uh, percent in the surgical arm, and this is uh, uh, made up of uh, all the different components: so uh, death, stroke, and rehospitalization. So this is an important factor. Uh, so all three 
components of the composite uh, outcome are, are all trending in the same direction. So when we, we see that the overall effect is highly statistical, significant, that we can believe it as well. Um, obviously, as we move into lower risk cohorts of patients, then we start having to worry about what the longevity of these valves are. And that still is uh, to be learned about. And we're still understanding how that how that plays out. And um, we want to know about power valvular leak. And I'd say the new devices that we have are much better than the early generation of, uh, of Tavar valves. And so if we can solve uh, power valvular leak and we can solve uh, the need for permanent pacemaker, then we will have an incredibly useful and good technology, which then in itself can propose a create a, a difficult situation for practicing clinicians when you have lower risk patients asking uh, for TAVA rather than uh, traditional open surgery. And where we then start to have to have very nuanced conversations with our patients, and and you know if, if someone asked me what would you like to have a procedure that's done through your leg and you could potentially go home the next day or the day after uh, versus having my chest opened, then it it, it seems um, very intuitive that most patients will choose down the TAVA route, but there will still be a cohort of patients that are best served with surgery, and it's just trying to identify those patients up front, which is going to be the the next challenge for us. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, you know, we've started having these conversations with our patients. You know, patients have uh, come to us, you know, truly, truly low-risk patients, you know, mid-60s, mid early mm. 70s, otherwise healthy, have senile calcific aortic stenosis. And, uh, you know, we've, at our center, we systematically use um, these cerebral embolic protection device in, in all our cases. Right. Um, again, is a subjective discussion and, and debate. Um, if if you look at uh, the overall practice pattern and, and trends, and you know even the overall stroke rates as the technology has improved, and as uh, operators have gotten better, the stroke rates have actually declined uh, quite a bit. If you look across the spectrum of all the uh, TAVR studies that have been published, uh, uh, you know For over sure. the over the span of a decade. For sure. Um, We've got better at doing them, haven't we? I mean, this was initially when we started. I, I remember when we first started doing TAVR in our hospital. Uh, you know, this was uh, a still a very new approach, which required quite uh, a steep learning curve and understanding the various processes. And now it's something that's routine uh, and it's becoming increasingly minimal. We're reducing the number of wires and kit in the patients. Uh, and all of these things make subtle differences. Plus, I would say... Um, the patient cohort that were originally in these studies, so uh, certainly the cohort that we were doing at the Hammersmith, very high risk, you know, true true surgical turndowns. Um, and uh, I think that that was un almost certainly a driver of major events in these patients. Certainly, you know, one, one thing about starting a TAVA program is if, if you have to have a true surgical turndown, then suddenly the surgeons are doing a lot more, uh, lot more AVR than uh, they were before. Um, that's certainly what we've seen. Our, you know, our surgeons suddenly uh, want to take a lot more patients on because you know they they otherwise worry that their numbers are going to go down. Yes. So you know, uh, I just wanted want to take this opportunity to actually ask you mm. about um, you know the the practice patterns after the publication of these two papers in the New England Journal of Medicine. I know. Um, it was recently approved uh, for low risk, even in Europe. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if London falls into that 
category uh, or, yeah, or yeah absolutely so we've uh, we have a very comprehensive uh tavi or tava program where uh, every patient is discussed in uh, a heart team meeting so patients will be seen by uh tava operators uh they have to see a surgeon and they have to have a detailed discussion with the surgeon the surgeon has to agree that they are a surgical turndown uh, and in cases where there's equipoise, there will be a fairly robust discussion uh, either way. And uh, we will often make a shared decision with the patient. So uh, there it's, it's often the difficult decisions are in, in the younger patients. So the problem we're doing it in a 60-year-old is uh, that we don't know the longevity. And if the valve wears out, then okay, we can put another uh, a taver inside that patient, say in five to eight years, say. Uh, but for example, if we've chosen to put a core valve into a patient and then we put another core valve in, are we going to be able to get to the left main for when they have you know, an MI or something like that? So can we get uh, a coronary access through two layers of core valves? So these are the kind of new complex decisions that we're having to decide. But in terms of what we're actually doing and in terms of the patients we're taking on, I think we have uh, followed the findings of these results, these studies, and and we're taking lower risk patients for sure. And what we find is if you take a lower risk patient, then the outcomes are actually better because, of course, uh, there tends to be um, uh, less vascular complications uh, and less other complications from, you know, poorly uh, uh, patients with frailty. So I think it, this is a, a technology that's really now coming into its fore, but we still you know, just have to be a little bit careful um, because it turns out that not every one of these devices is, is equal um, and there are some nuances that, uh, that we're going to have to think carefully about. Yes, and you know, just talking about those nuances, uh, how are you selecting, you know, in low-risk cohorts, how are you selecting balloon uh, expandable versus self-expanding devices? Well, I mean, um, is there uh, a strategy like an anatomic strategy or is there... Yeah, so we have two, our, our, our team uh, uses um, uh, either the Medtronic self-expanding valve or the uh, uh, the traditional Edwards balloon inflatable valve, and they've got really good experience with both these. And so they will um, decide at the MDT, the multidisciplinary team meeting, and they'll predominantly base it on the anatomy uh, and the presence of the coronaries and uh, the sizing. These are all important factors. Um, and we haven't moved on to do some of the more um, advanced techniques that are coming through now with uh, like the silica and things like that. Um, but we, we've, we've done some transcaval cases. Um, and so, you know, these are uh, fairly advanced, complex techniques. And, uh, and, and so this then starts altering who can have what. And uh, I think that's a, an important factor. All our patients get CT. They all get very comprehensive review by vascular surgeons. And we have a specialist radiologist who uh, specializes in interpreting these CTs. Uh, it, it does it alongside a, a cardiologist who reads um, CT. And uh, this then helps decide the approach, the route, um, and the and the valve that we're going to use. Yes. Um, you know, it's very similar to what is done in the U.S. in terms of, uh, you know, having uh, committees and, and heart teams uh, systematically go through each of these cases, um, you know, together as a team, review all the imaging, um, all the diagnostic data, and have uh, that discussion with the patient, you know, together with an interventional cardiologist and a cardiac surgeon in the room together with the patient, um, you know, having those conversations. I think it's it's very heartening and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great time to actually be 
an interventional cardiologist, you know, where, you know, you know, you and I have actually seen uh, the genesis and the development of this specific technology and how it has altered the the game. I mean, oh, oh for sure, absolutely, everything uh, in the in the times that um, uh, you and I have trained um, coming through from just think if you think. Uh, when I was a what we call houseman, um, or you guys would say intern, uh, we were thrombolizing MIs, and um, so we've moved from uh, thrombolysis to primary PCI, and then PCI in very simple lesions to increasingly complex. There was a time when I remember that you know people would gather around to look uh, if someone was doing a left main, and it was you know people would talk about it for a couple of days afterwards. And now I'm routinely doing left main angioplasty. Uh, on my cath lab list and, and no one bats an eyelid so this is um, just the evolution of uh, generally how good things have got I think we we forget how good things are um, and it's easy to easy to kind of fall into the melancholy of you know uh, there's there's bias in this study or there's difficulty in this study when reality is that things are actually very good I agree with you so so moving moving on from the Taver uh, space to uh, to another study which was you know um, I I thought was um, an important study mm. and um, you know that was uh, the the Safari was one and then the other one was Coact yeah yeah so Safari is very interesting because Safari um, looked at uh, access uh, site for interventional cardiologists particularly patients uh, undergoing STEMI uh, so primary angioplasty. And the, the received wisdom over the years has been that radial uh, is a better and safer route. And obviously, you have a huge proponent sort of uh, radial first. Uh, we have Sano Rao and you know, many others. And in the UK, we've got many uh, um, people who've really uh, preached this. And in the UK, uh, radial access has now reached, um, I believe, in the latest um, ACI presented data that was presented at ACI in the year was in excess of 85%. I think it was up, up to 88% if I'm, if I'm um, not wrong. So that's remarkable. Uh, and I think when, when our North American cousins hear us say this, they just assume that we're not doing complex things radially. And, and that's not true. We actually do really quite complex. I mean, I did a, uh, a multi-vessel case just radially the other day in which uh, happily did the whole case using a six French caster and we were uh, using um, uh, advanced uh, uh, atherectomy devices uh, in order to be able to get a good result. So these things can actually be done. But the question in, in STEMI has been, which is the safest? And some of our older operators have often said, that, look, you know, just give me the chance to uh, go in firmly and we'll just get the case done. And Safari actually f- showed that the difference wasn't as strong as we thought it was going to be. We thought this would be an easy win for radial. And in fact, this was less of a, a strong win. And I think there's a number of reasons that this happens. I think um, as uh, we come through um, in our training and in our clinical practice, we get so used to doing uh, radial cases that if you are presented with a case that has to be done femorally, you end up having to think twice. I think certainly uh, I uh, have to think very hard before doing femoral. And certainly when I was coming through at the beginning, uh, I did femoral day in and day out. I'm sure I could do uh, femoral punctures with my eyes closed. And now we've moved on to this era that we have to have uh, uh, so-called safe femoral. So you're angiographically uh, identifying the markers. You're, you're using an ultrasound to make the puncture. 
Uh, you may use a micropuncture uh, kit. We don't, I don't have access to that in our hospital, but I know other people do. Um, but I think what it does is if you don't do femoral regularly, then your skills go down. And this has been shown in the matrix studies as well, that when you ask radial, exclusively radial operators to make femoral puncture, I think femoral complications go up, bleeding complications go up. And this is why studies like Safari end up showing results that aren't quite what you expected. Mm-hmm. And- yes. Um, you know, I, I, it, it just belabors the point. Uh, I mean, you know, not, not to belabor it that much, but I think uh, establishing a routine is, is critical in, in procedural fields. Um, and if you have a routine and if you've been doing cases, like I said, you know, day in and day out um, with um, a routine um, sort of, um, uh, you know, routine, there's a routine, there's a culture, um, there are uh, ancillary support stuff which get used to a certain access. Mm. Um, and then, you know, how these patients are taken care of after the case is done is also very important. I mean, uh, you know, if you are, you know, if you're systematically doing radial cases and not doing femoral cases, then, you know, the staff that is handling complications or, you know, even, uh, you know, uh, you know, superficial bleeds or hematomas that may occur following femoral access may be difficult leading to, uh, you know, a hard end point like bleeding. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we, I mean, we've seen this. I'm sure you've seen this in clinical practice. So studies are one thing, but uh, uh, real life clinical practices are completely other. And we've seen uh, uh, the we get un- de-skilled in uh, in using compression devices. Uh, the staff get de-skilled in using compression devices. And every so often, you you will get a retroperitoneal bleed. And uh, people, whereas in the past, people were very geared up for uh, a identifying it, b getting it treated. This may now get missed because it's just something that's a little bit unexpected now. Um, so I think the key thing is your, your comment that uh, you have to be familiar with what you're doing and you have to do it a lot to a high quality. I think that's absolutely right. And I think the, the, the take home that I came away from uh, from um, uh, Safari was actually uh, sometimes we, we can get a little bit passionate about, for example, everything should be radial or everything should be uh, one way or the other. But I think what this shows us is that there is room for both technologies and for operators, for example, who are very happy and very safe with a femoral approach can certainly go with a femoral approach rather than making it difficult for them. Because ultimately what we want is a good outcome for the patient. And if you can achieve that access safely, femorally, by using the ultrasound, by using uh, angiographic markers, then uh, I I don't think that's such a, a, a bad thing. And we also have to remember the, the, the era has changed. You know, we're no longer using GPI, um, GP23A antagonists. Um, and we're uh, back to principally using heparin now. We've, in the UK, we've certainly stopped using bivalirudin. Uh, and so perhaps some of the, the initial bleeding benefit that came from radial perhaps may be nullified as a consequence of that. So I, I love radial. I love it when the patients get up and just walk out the cath lab. I think that's absolutely fantastic. But you know, there. If for those operators who 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 feel they can't do it, or they feel they they need to go with a femoral route, I think we mustn't penalise them. Uh, and so, I think that's an important factor. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, you know, listen, I I, I think most of what you've just said, it, you know, resonates with a lot of the practice patterns that I've seen in the US. Uh, Bivalirudin, I don't use routinely at all. Uh, you know, most of the cases are anticagrelor, heparin. 
and radial access mm-hmm. and you know like you've said bleeding is is minimal um i'm also you know again you know trained in the era where um you know was very comfortable with uh, you know both femoral and radial access so i would say about 80% of what i do is radial but then there would be 20 to 25% cases where we have to go femoral for example patients with with bypass grafts you know even though um, you know we've tried we've gone left radial and that's worked fine you know there are some complex anatomies where you have to you know just do it femorally yeah i uh, i agree and you know i i've uh, i you know just to, as a little uh, amusing situation every time i go left radial i i ask the staff to remind me never to go left radial and i know there are i, I know there are people who swear by left radial and um they feel that obviously i haven't got the ergonomics right but uh, particularly in bigger patients leaning across these patients trying to get grafts where you don't know the anatomy uh, just makes a slightly miserable experience where whereas you know if you can ha- if you can do it firmly i think that's fine and of course there are those patients with complex anatomy uh, where you need large bore catheters i think there is still a room for it i agree so let's uh, let's move on and talk about coact which was uh, you know taking patients to the cat lab following an episode of cardiac arrest resuscitated cardiac arrest yeah. Um, so this was an interesting study because for me, I've always had, um, uh, so the concept is, d- does every cardiac arrest need to go to the cath lab? Uh, and does, uh, and, you know, do we have to uh, take them if they've been resuscitated, take them straight to lab and have a, a essentially a, an assessment of the coronary arteries and maybe some primary angioplasty? Or can we wait? And there are several schools of thoughts on this. So I, I, my personal school of thought was that uh, if the patient had done the decent thing and managed to survive a cardiac arrest, uh, then at least I had, at least I could do was take them to the cath lab. Um, but what this study has essentially showed was that um, we can, uh, we can afford to wait. And I, and I think the reason that this occurs is that lots of patients who've had cardiac arrest have bad outcomes, and um, the the problem we're taking them to uh, the cath lab immediately is that we can make things a little bit worse. We give p- powerful antiplatelets, uh, we give heparin, and if there is brain swelling uh, after a, a, a period of downtime, then actually we can be making um, things harmful. Uh, and so that that's uh, that's an important factor. So if by waiting uh, you mitigate that, you reduce that risk. I think that's a safe thing for the patient. And I think the other aspect of it is that naturally and this is perhaps people don't talk about it is that you will uh, naturally uh, lose patients in that very first hot period in the first say 12 hours after the cardiac arrest and so you are essentially only taking the survivors to the cath lab now this uh, is difficult this is a highly emotive subject and it's a, a difficult process but uh, the, what i took away from the coax study is that perhaps we don't necessarily need to be activating the cath lab for every single um, cardiac arrest patient. Now, that's not to say that patients without persistent ST elevation on their ECG or those patients that had chest pain before uh, the cardiac arrest, I think those patients are probably still will, will take. And so you must individualize care. But the, the finding was that there wasn't much value by immediately taking patients to lab. Um, and, you know, you will often find disease, but perhaps you're not necessarily going to uh, uh, be able to make it anything better in that first in that first high risk period. I agree. You know, I think um, so. My practice has been, you know, if it's a resuscitated refib 
or ventricular tachyarrhythmia or ventricular tachycardia arrest. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, following resuscitation, the EKG or the ECG, the 12 lead electrocardiogram has, is showing ST elevation. I mean, you know, that, that patient obviously needs to go. Um, in, in patients where ST elevation is not as prominent or, um, you know, there's suspicion, you know, again, to your point of individualizing care and, you know, diving more into the story and, you know, granted, you know, many times it's, it's very difficult to get the exact scenario yeah, some- that led to cardiac arrest. Mm. Um, I think it, it, you really have to sort of, you know, if, you know, talk to family members and sort of figure out how this particular patient was doing, uh, you know, before this unfortunate event occurred and, you know, make a decision. Also look at uh, the other biochemical parameters like, you know, you know, lactic acid and evidence for leukocytosis and, you know, hemoglobin, yeah. all these factors Absolutely. would increase the, increase the risk um, of a bad outcome in, in, in the cath lab. You know, that's what, that's what I do personally. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think certainly it, this study was important for me because it meant that I was much uh, more relaxed about these patients. I think I had a very uh, aggressive approach of taking these patients to lab. I think I'd personally seen some cases in which uh, I felt that I'd made a difference by taking them to lab. But now, certainly, those that have STEMI uh, are definitely going to go there. Uh, And those that don't have uh, clear ECG changes, I perhaps would wait. I think the presence of ST depression or any other alarming arrhythmia or any other alarming ST change, I would definitely uh, consider, but I think it um, it just helps risk stratify these patients. And I think in the era of um, uh, interventional cardiologists doing having public re- reporting, this is an important factor. I think in the UK, uh, we've had public reporting for some time. Uh, arrested patients are treated differently because they stratify your uh, the data um, according to the clinical status of the patient. But, uh, and so that's why I've always felt, you know, we should we should take these patients because it, it gives them an opportunity. But perhaps this these data basically tell us that we we can relax a little. I I, I agree with you completely. Do so. Moving on to ESC, uh, the European Study of Cardiology Congress, which you know I think was um, you know the marquee event for cardiology. A lot of uh, good data coming out, um, arguably one of the best meetings for 2019. Would you agree? I, I would agree. It was an amazing meeting to go to. Uh, I had the privilege of being there. And um, first, it's always amazing being in Paris. Uh, and it's uh, always a great pleasure to be there. It's a, such a beautiful city. Um, the conference venue was good. Uh, I think some of the European conference venues are not as uh, well uh, placed as the North Americans. Uh, principally because, as you say, they've grown organically rather than um, purpose-built. Um, but the the data was just incredible, and the atmosphere was electric. Biggest meeting of, of in cardiology now, much bigger than the North American meetings. I believe it was thirty six thousand people uh, attended. Um, sorry, uh, registered attendees. Uh, that's not including all the other um, uh, support staff and industry there. So just a huge number of people, and uh, and some great data as well. Yes, you know, so so Paris, uh, you know, has has always been one of one of my my favorite cities. It's um, is is just is always a romantic place to to visit, um, and you know, it's certainly um, good fodder for the poet in me. Um, but you know, talking about the talking about the data that came out uh, at ESC, uh, so let let's start with um, 
DAPA HF, you know, which I think is is a landmark trial. Yeah. So I mean, it was controversial that it was presented at ESC at all, because uh, as you'll know, it was originally uh, was aimed to be presented solely at AHA, but they managed to sneak it in as a ultra late breaking study um, because they were just so overwhelmed by how positive the data was, and. I think the SGLT2 story is uh, super important and will alter the way we treat patients going forward. So type 2 diabetics who don't have optimal blood sugar control, uh, who are on metformin and who have predominantly atherosclerotic disease are now recommended to have an SGLT2 as the uh, next agent that's added. So that's over and above GLP-1s and any other um, agents. So better than glicolazide and all these things. And what the three SGLT2 studies showed, and that's uh, true for uh, EMPA, CANA and APA, they all basically showed that there was a reduction in heart failure-related events. And so what DAPA-HF did was actually take patients with reduced systolic function, so um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and randomize them to uh, having uh, DAPA or placebo. And they showed a really quite profound uh, 25% reduction in the hazard ratio in, uh, in the combined endpoint. So the combined endpoint was a combination of a couple of things. So there's cardiovascular death, and then there was hospitalization for heart failure. And then they had something which was perhaps slightly softer, which was urgent heart failure visitation or uh, urgent uh, visit for heart failure um, overall. And uh, although you can kind of argue over the value of these kind of slightly softer endpoints, I think they are important because for our patients, um, having to come into hospital because of breathlessness or pulmonary edema uh, is a frightening experience and it's hugely costly. Patients are often in for quite a long period of time and there is a huge amount of risk because they're going to get IV Lasix uh, and uh, have potentially hyperkalemia as a consequence and arrhythmia and all these kind of things can happen. So anything that reduces that, I think, is a, a valuable thing. And then what they what they so what they found was this huge reduction. But what was really quite profound, and they uh, showed this uh, at the ESC, but they really went into it in detail at AHA, was that the same benefit that was seen uh, in the uh, overall cohort was seen in both diabetics and non-diabetics. So that's a really quite profound and astounding finding. So the, the overall learning from these uh, studies are that we can add these drugs as a heart failure drug. Um, we've still got to understand exactly how they're having benefit. And we are, I know there's active research into seeing how well these drugs work in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But I can imagine that uh, this is a very exciting time for heart failure uh, doctors as well as heart failure patients because suddenly we've got something that can make a real profound difference uh, for their care. Yes. Um, so um, let me ask you a question. And, you know, I was um, at a meeting recently and I was listening to an endocrinologist um, who is, um, you know, she, she does um, endocrinology clinic at the Cleveland Clinic. And, um, you know, I was asking her as to whether she has seen an increase in consults from cardiologists or from heart failure cardiologists who now want their patients to be on dipagliflozin. Um, mm. I, I know you, you sort of mentioned that there was a class effect with dipagliflozin and with canagliflozin, but, you know, DAPA-HF was done with dipagliflozin. Yeah, that's right. So DAPA's got the data at the moment, and I'm, I'm, I know that uh, empagliflozin has a study that's uh, going to 
probably complete and report next year. There, we in the UK have been quite forward thinking about this, and uh, we've been running clinics in, in here where some of our post PCI patients and those patients who are coming up to a year when we're typically advising on whether they go for long dual antiplatelet therapy or whether they they stop, we have been recommending in our diabetic patients uh, for uh, for the primary care physician to be starting drugs like uh, DAPA or EMPA and. Uh, now, in our heart failure cohort, we will almost certainly start in- increasing these drugs. I think it's important for cardiologists to be uh, familiar with how to start the drugs and to understand the potential side effects um, and when they should recommend patients to stop. And there is a subtlety with this. So what I've found when I've personally been using these drugs is that, for example, you may need slightly less uh, frosamide or Latex. And you uh, have to remind patients to have sick day rules. So if they're unwell, uh, particularly if they're, they're diabetic, then they may wish um, to uh, avoid drugs that can cause uh, hypoglycemia. If they're on insulin, they must never stop. There are some other uh, potential side effects uh, from these drugs. Urinary tract infections uh, and genital infections, and typically in the form of thrush, are, are incredibly common. And I think if you've got patients who are having multiple thrush infections that are resistant to treatment, uh, that may be an indication for stopping these drugs. And although I can imagine that many cardiologists will be very reluctant to become familiar with these drugs, I think that the benefit that we've seen in them is so strong that we should certainly consider uh, consider them. And if you're not confident, then then speak to an endocrinologist. We've, we've got a good relationship with endocrinology. Uh, and in fact, we had one of our um, uh, clinical lecturers in endocrinology come and give our department a talk very recently uh, and um, so we could all become very familiar with them. And the, the, the data is so strong that we should definitely be thinking about these drugs. I agree with you. You know, I think, um, again, I mean, I'm, I'm sure as an interventional cardiologist, it, it could be challenging to deal with vaginal candidiasis or thrush in a clinic patient. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we're the ones having to, to manage it, but the point is that particularly in a heart failure uh, cohort, whether it's going to be you or your advanced uh, nurse practitioner who specializes in heart failure, we have those here in the UK, uh, they are going to have to see these patients frequently and their patients are going to report them. So we need to upskill a little bit in, in this area. I agree. So, I mean, is your typical cornerstone therapy now for a heart failure patient with reduced ejection fraction at least, uh, you know, is a combination of a beta blocker an angiotensin eprilysin inhibitor and uh, an SGLT2? I mean, is that the modern cornerstone that we're going to see? Yeah, it's hard to know when to add these drugs in, principally because the patients in DAPRHF were incredibly well treated. Very, almost every single patient was on either an ACE, ARB or Sacubutral Valsartan combination. So they were incredibly well treated in that regard. Virtually every single patient had a beta blocker, but there were very high levels of mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist use as well. So spironolactone or impleralone. And it means that this may be a drug that's added in after that point. So I can imagine, particularly when the payers start to look at this, uh, because, you know, these drugs aren't going to be cheap. Uh, they may say, look, you know, only once you've got patients on spironolactone, uh, then um, you should be giving these drugs. I think the question is whether we should be giving them for stable patients who are in New York uh, classification one or whether we should wait until they're in class two, class three. And then that's a tricky one, because the whole point is to prevent this 
uh, slippery slope for our heart failure patients. So I, I would be inclined to try and give the, the drugs as upstream as possible. And uh, I'd be interested to see how the heart failure doctors resolve this and how their guidelines change. Uh, my clinics are very broad in general. I, I have uh, uh, specialist clinics, but I also have a very uh, so, uh, unselected clinic. And so we end up looking after these heart failure patients. And we work in tandem with uh, other specialists and advanced heart failure doctors, but they particularly want to work predominantly with advanced heart failure and those who are going to need more complex devices and therapies. And so the more general patient I'm just going to see in my clinic, as I'm sure you will too. And so knowing when to in initiate these drugs is going to be super important. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So moving on from SGLT2 to actually talking about de-escalating therapy in our patients, and that is, um, you know, patients post-PCI who are on dual antiplatelet therapy, um, you know, Themesis was presented at ESC, and then um, I think I'm going to probably also have you talk about a couple other studies which are relevant to the topic, um, yeah. and those are ISR. So react 5 and then twilight which was presented at tct yeah that's right so uh, the world of antiplatelets uh, gets really uh, tricky and confusing i um ended up developing a bit of a reputation in, in my local hospital as being the antiplatelet guy but uh, i have to say uh, even when i'm reading these studies it becomes bewildering uh, and to know how to reconcile the differences between them so i think the the key thing is that most people want to shorten dapt and they want to do it safely. So you need to balance uh, the um, slight trade-off with increased ischemic events uh, with the improvement in bleeding events. And uh, Themis was, is the last of the Ticaglor uh, studies that was done as part of this uh, very comprehensive set of studies looking at extending the indications for Ticaglor in, in patients with stable disease, peripheral vascular disease, cerebral vascular disease. And what Themis was looking at was patients with uh, type 2 diabetes and, and confirmed coronary disease. So either they've either had stents, they've had bypass, or they've had at least a 50% stenosis on, on coronary angiography. And they were giving them uh, ticagrelor or uh, Brelenta, as you, uh, you would know it in the US, and um, looking to see if it improved uh, major adverse cardiovascular events. And there was indeed uh, a benefit, but that benefit was relatively small and was unfortunately balanced out by an increase in bleeding events. And so the absolute risk benefit was, was modest, uh, and the, uh, although statistically very strong, uh, but the, the, there is a significant increase in bleeding. And so this then becomes a, a situation where we start needing complex risk scores to telling us whether a, a drug is going to be uh, of value in particular patients. And uh, it also requires us to have quite complex conversations with patients because drugs like Ticagalor, whilst excellent, they have a number of downsides. They, they do uh, cause breathlessness in patients and there is a high discontinuation rate. So this is uh, an important factor. So just looking at the numbers, the, the, the placebo arm had an event rate of 7.6 uh, and the Ticagalor arm had an event rate of 6.9. So the hazard ratio was 0.9, statistically significant at, at 0 0.038. So it meets uh, the, the um, level of significance. And this is for cardiovascular death, MI or stroke. So relatively important events. But the uh, confidence intervals are really quite close to unity. They go from 0.81 to 0 0.99. And bleeding events uh, do also increase. 
And so we really have to we have to worry about that a little bit. So we see a a doubling in Timmy major bleeding, and that's not a small bleed. That's a, a major major bleed. And even if we look at uh, the various Bark scores, we're still seeing various uh, a big increase. So Bark five, four or three, we're seeing uh, two and a half times higher levels of bleeding. So we have to understand which patients can tolerate these drugs and, and which uh, don't. And that's another challenge. When you've got big studies like Themis, I think they have enough data to be able to to look at this in, in greater detail. Uh, I did uh, ask Deepak Bat actually uh, whilst uh, at TCT whether they had the angiographic data in these patients to see if we could start teasing out the uh, importance, you know, the, whether the anatomy was a factor. But unfortunately, because of the sheer cost of getting the angiograms, they said that they didn't actually have that data. So that, that's a slightly disappointing, but um uh, this the results are what they are it shows that there is a there is a a, a modest benefit uh at the cost of bleeding yeah so i mean uh, in your clinical practice i mean you know again talking about individualizing care for patients um do you have a particular tool to to that you use to to re, to re- reconcile all the data and knowledge that we've garnered from these trials, these very expensive trials. Yeah, yeah it, it's really tricky because I think there's a combination of the fact that scores like the DAP score and the precise DAPT score, um, they give you pointers, but they will never tell you for the page, precise patient that's in front of you. Uh, and I think as an interventionist, we're often very driven by the coronary anatomy. And so when we've performed complex bifurcation, or particularly a very proximal stents to stents that are bifurcating into left main, uh, I think we have a natural tendency to want to uh, run the antiplatelets for longer, uh, but that comes with a bleeding risk. And I think some of uh, the risk scores don't include the coronary anatomy in that, in that way, but principally because the study data didn't really allow it. So we don't have a great way of making this estimate. I know if you uh, follow um, uh, the great Bobby Yeh and they've you know, really worked incredibly hard at making the uh, risk scores and intuitive tools, uh, but certainly this is not in my practice. And I would say that most of my colleagues at our particular hospital aren't uh, following this. I think perhaps others in the UK may, um, and uh, but I, I'd say that I'm not sure about the precise external validity of some of these schools, particularly in some of the patients we we end up treating. Uh, we have a very cosmopolitan, very mixed cohort of patients, which simply wouldn't have been in some of the uh, North American studies. How, how about yourself? Do you use any particular risk score or calculator? Um, yeah. So you know, talking about Bobby, you know, I obviously know him. I was fortunate enough mm. to have, have trained with him when he just joined the Beth Israel Deaconess from Mass General when I was a fellow at BI Deaconess. Um, so I, I do um, actually use the the tool that he's developed, the, the, the DAP score. Um, mm. And then there's another tool which is more simplistic. It's the precise DAP, which I think, yes. um, you know, Deepak Bhatt and, and Greg Stone were authors on that manuscript, which was published in Lancet. Uh, yes. So yeah, those are the ones that I, I sort of go to um, when I have to make a decision on stopping versus starting or escalating versus de-escalating therapies. Um, but again, you know, I think it's, it's become, like you said, it's, it's becoming confusing as more data are coming out from all these trials, you know, we're going to talk about Twilight in, in a little bit, which is, yeah, absolutely. you know, which patients, yeah. um, to do the monotherapy with aspirin versus 
uh, an advanced B2Y12. So why don't you, you know, talk to us yeah, a little so, bit about that? Yeah. So Twilight is uh, very interesting because it, it, it takes the opposite tact. So rather than adding in uh, a potent antiplatelet, it's actually removing the stalwart of aspirin. And so uh, this study that was uh, led by Roxana Moran um, with uh, performed internationally with uh, you know a great number uh, of high-profile investigators basically took patients that were high risk and that had coronary intervention, and then at three months they were then randomised to uh, remain on aspirin or to go to placebo therapy and uh, continue on ticagrelor alone as a single antiplatelet. And what they saw uh, was benefit in this cohort. And what's interesting is they, not only did they see a reduction in um, bleeding events, but there was also a reduction in ischemic events, which is somewhat unusual because you're, you're essentially eliminating one of the antiplatelets. And there are some complex pharmacology behind this and this overall feeling that perhaps there is an interaction between aspirin and ticagrelor uh, that may uh, to be to blame for this. And in the original Plato study, the feeling was with very high doses of, uh, of um, aspirin, then uh, there is an interaction with Tocagalor. And uh, But uh, I think that, you know, we've moved away from using high-dose aspirin since that time. Certainly never been the, uh, the practice in Europe uh, in, in that regard. But perhaps the, the American cohorts are now, you know, used to using lower-dose aspirin. So it's interesting to see this phenomena where, you have a safety signal, you're getting less bleeding, but also an ischemic signal. And where the ischemic signal was strongest in the patients with the most complex coronary anatomy. So uh, those patients, you can in, uh, intuitively imagine that if they have super high risk, uh, they've got complex coronary anatomy, that they will then get the, uh, the most benefit too. Yes. Um, so uh, let me ask you this question. Are, are you comfortable in stopping aspirin in someone who, in who you know, who you've stented uh, post an acute coronary syndrome, what do you, what is the strategy in those patients? Yeah, so that's that's a, a, a tricky cohort. I have to say, uh, I intuitively would be uh, concerned about stopping uh, aspirin. We do naturally stop the aspirin in those patients who are on so-called triple therapy. They've got uh, concomitant atrial fibrillation, and so they're on a NOAC. Uh, we typically use either rivaroxaban. Uh, now, after Augustus, we may also use um, uh, pixaban. And uh, we get rid of the aspirin typically at three months. Uh, there is some data that shows there is early hazard when you uh, remove the aspirin very early. Uh, and there's some papers published recently showing that there is an increase in stent thrombosis during that period. Uh, and so therefore, you know, take, allowing the patient to take aspirin for pr probably about three months would be sensible in that cohort. We don't have that precise data uh, in all common ACS in sinus rhythm. And so I, it does make me nervous of getting rid of the aspirin. Um, I, however, I think aspirin is the one that causes GI bleeding. Aspirin is the one that causes allergy. Uh, aspirin is, uh, can cause lots of other uh, side effects. And so we, we, we have to, we, we have to, although we've grown up with this drug and this is the, the stalwart of, of cardiology, uh, there are some downsides to the medication. And so we should look very carefully at the data, um, look carefully at our patient and, and then try and make our best guess. But there isn't a single study that answers all of it in one go, unfortunately. There's there's new answers for every single one. I agree with you. You know, you brought up a very interesting point of aspirin allergy. I've actually had a couple patients, um, you know, fairly successively who, who both had aspirin allergy and you know, they both ended up getting, um, you know, primary PCI and I was the operator doing it uh, mm. and tried to desensitize them and it became, 
uh, a new uh, in a nuisance more than you know the uh, the process of desensitization and you know in those patients we actually what we did um, was to just add uh, the stable two point five dose of rivaroxaban you know yes. th- both these patients were in sinus rhythm were getting ticagrelor or were allergic to aspirin so that's been my strategy I, I don't know how evidence based that is but, it's, this is what this is what we're doing too um, and so uh, I would hasten to add that the uh, patients on the number of patients on low dose rivaroxaban or as i call it baby dose rivaroxaban 2.5 bd uh and ticagrelor are very modest in the studies very very modest numbers of patients so there isn't a huge amount of data but that's what we've done in our um aspirin uh, sensitive patients i think the first thing to say is true aspirin allergy is actually not that common uh i think a, a lot of people who say they're allergic to aspirin aren't um and so it's trying to take a history from the patient trying to understand why they think that they're aspirin allergic. And then if they are genuinely, we, we have uh, a, a, an Imperial at St. Mary's Hospital, we've got a, a very dynamic and engaged uh, allergy unit and we can ask them to perform desensitization. There are some very simple protocols that you can perform on the ward, but in general, we've now moved over to using a potent P2Y12 together with Rivaroxaban, just in the same way as you have. Yeah, that's that's good to know. It's, it's reassuring because you know, you, you're sort of, stuck between a rock and a hard place, um, you know, with these patients with a fresh stent and, you know, and sort of almost, almost a day, I shouldn't really say a data free zone, but, you know, like you said, data are very limited. Yeah. yeah I mean, the global, global leaders uh, used uh, aspirin for a very short time after, um, after uh, ACS, but overall global leaders w- was a neutral study. And so it's hard to, uh, to to basically take too much away f- uh, from that. Yes. Um, so uh, let's let's while we are still on antiplatelets, I think we should we should finish it up by talking a little bit about Isar React Five. Oh yes, yeah. So Isar React is um, it made some people very very happy. So uh, the background to this is uh, I don't know quite what happened in the US, but certainly in the UK. There was a period where everybody was using uh, clopidogrel for acute coronary syndromes and STEMI, uh, and then prasugrel came along, uh, and then um, ticagrelor came along very shortly after. And then there was a confusing time where we were using potentially all three drugs for acute coronary syndrome patients. But the data for ticagrelor seemed to be a little bit stronger. And uh, there's some debate over that about exactly where its strength lays, and there are some, uh, some novel analyses out there. And it basically meant that in the UK, we settled on Ticagrelor as a principal agent for uh, acute coronary syndrome, particularly in STEMI. Uh, and then it rolled out to NSTEMI, and now it's used in all forms of acute coronary syndrome. But uh, Prasugrel has recently gone off patent. It's now uh, very cheap uh, in the UK. And it's uh, in some, some, some places in England, there are some staunch Prasugrel fans. Now, Prasugrel is a great drug. It's basically like clopidogrel, except it's uh, it's already had a degree of hydrolysis and cleavage within the liver, and therefore it's already um, one step of uh, closer to activation than clopidogrel is, so it's more rapid onset. It is more potent, and uh, it achieves a great antiplatelet effect, but it ran into some trouble because the original uh, ticagrelor pivotal studies gave, uh, sorry, uh, prasugrel, gave prasugrel after the coronary anatomy was known. And this is very different from our usual practice, certainly in the UK, uh, 
uh, where, for example, if you've had an acute coronary syndrome with a small troponin rise, you are, it's not common for patients to go to cath lab the same day. They may wait a couple of days. The typical level of waiting is one to two days. Uh, and we've got a number of uh, metrics that you want to get the case done within three days, certainly. I know that sounds a little bit unusual in the US where it's counted in hours, but we would therefore want to give an antiplatelet upfront. So the problem with Prasugal in the UK then is uh, if you're not going to take the patient to the lab straight away, then you can't give drugs like Prasugal. So where ISAR React uh, did was they, they took patients who um, were having uh, STEMI and uh, they randomized them to, uh, to Cagalor or to um, uh, Prasugal. And they uh, basically were, they were under the impression that Tacagalor was going to be better. They actually found the complete opposite. They found that uh, Prasugal had a much lower event rate than Tacagalor. And uh, there was also a much lower bleeding. There are some complexities here. One of the main complexities is that this isn't really a pure antiplatelet study. This is also a uh, strategy study. Because if you were randomized to go down the route of uh, Prasugrel, then you didn't get the drug until after the anatomy was known. And therefore, you would potentially have less bleeding and bleeding complications because the patient had less antiplatelets on board. So that's one uh, potential limitation of the study. The second is that there was a very high uh, femoral rate in uh, this uh, study. And it, uh, although it's multi-center, it's predominantly performed in Germany. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, the femoral route is very common there. And so they, you could argue that that may have driven some bleeding events. And so whilst uh, we're very uh, delighted to see that Prasugal came out so strongly in this study, because this is now a cheap and readily available drug, uh, better for our payers and better for our patients, it does mean that there are some limitations in the way we interpret it. And furthermore, I think it, those in the antiplatelet field have recognized that the likelihood of getting a comprehensive answer has always been low, mainly because we didn't think pharma would pay for it. They're not likely to do the study. And the other reality is that you need something like a 14 or 15,000 patient study as a minimum uh, to be able to compare this. And ISORIAT is a good study, but it's only in about 4,000 patients. So it's perhaps not truly big enough to be able to answer the question definitively, although it certainly uh, appears to be a, a good study and it, it should help give confidence for those patients, uh, those centers and clinicians who are preferring to use Prasugrel. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, what you described with the practice patterns between Prasugrel and Ticagrelor are very similar to what we've encountered here in the U.S. Uh, you know, Ticagrelor came out as a winner because, you know, the data were were better. There was a mortality benefit. Mm. Um, and you know, I think it was without all the contraindications that Prasugrel came with, right? I mean, yeah. You know. So Prasugrel had some post-hoc analyses that showed that the bleeding rates were higher in low-weight people, patients over seventy-five, patients with prior strokes. So that's a that's a huge factor. But we have to remember is the original Prasugrel studies didn't know that, so they included all those patients, and that's probably what drove poor outcomes, so higher bleeding rates. And so that's why they created those contraindications for the drug. And so now if we were to do a study where we select out those patients who meet those contraindications, then naturally you're going to drive a lower bleeding rate. So it's uh, perhaps academically slightly less pure, 
practically very good because that's exactly how you're going to use a uh, use a drug. But you could argue that you know if if you're wanting to understand which antiplatelet is the best, it it does muddy the water slightly. Yes, yes, I, I agree with you. Um, and you know, I think uh, the advantage of prasugrel is obviously it's it's a once a day drug compared with ticagrelor, which is for sure a twice a day drug. And yeah, for sure, I think that's one thing that we've learnt. Uh, over the years is that compliance of most medications is poor compliance of bd drugs is uh, particularly poor um, and if you uh, if you look at patients who get uh, dosette boxes you know those pre-packaged containers that have the medications all lined up then uh, even in those patients who have a, a clear prompt of what they need to take when uh, that the uptake of the, the second dose of the drug is actually quite bad and so anything that moves away from that is is, is going to be beneficial I agree. So let's let's move over to revascularization. I mean, I, that's what we do day in and day out as interventionists. Yeah. So let's talk about complete, and then let's talk about Excel. Yeah. yeah. So complete's a, a excellent study. So um, uh, complete. The concept of complete uh, is a, a question that keeps coming up time and time again. So when we do STEMIs. Uh, as you know, all interventionists will recognise that when you do STEMIs. Lots of patients have more coronary disease than ex- was expected, and we don't know quite what to do with those other lesions. And there's been studies that have pointed in lots of different directions. Uh, one of the big studies that came out back in 2013, all those many moons ago, was a PRAMI study. Uh, it's uh, a study performed in the UK, but had a number of limitations, relatively small, about 400 patients or so, and it took many years to recruit. Uh, maybe I think it took about five years to recruit. And so there's probably a huge selection bias. But what they showed in that particular study was if you stent uh, all the coronary stenoses, that there seemed to be an improvement of events. Now, the majority of the events it reduced was repeat revascularization. And so we should always be careful in that because, of course, if you've stented all the disease, then there isn't any more disease to stent. And so patients aren't going to come back for more stenting. So I think you should always take that with a slight pinch of salt when we look at any of these studies. And so that kind of gave us this idea that we should be managing the multivessel disease in a, in a different way. And then there was the Denami studies and Compare Acute, which used fractional flow reserve or FFR to try and guide our management of uh, this residual uh, disease. And both of those studies had similar findings. So if you did like Denami did, which you did FFR during the same admission, or Compare Acute, which was done at the time of the STEMI, they all basically reduced events, but actually there was no reduction in death or uh, significant MI. There's only reduction in repeat revascularization. So that, with that kind of context, uh, the, the, the McMaster group really wanted to answer this more definitively, and they uh, organized a much larger study called the Culprit Study. And what they did was they, they took about 4,000 patients who had had successful PCI to the culprit during primary angioplasty, and then randomize them to either complete revask or culprit only revask, and then follow them for three years. And it's a modern study, it's performed in the modern era, uh, and so we've got the latest generation stents and uh, the latest imaging techniques. And what's quite profound is in the complete revask arm, there uh, was a very high revascularization achieved. Uh, more than 90% and a syntax score of incredibly low, so zero uh, score of zero. So that kind of tells me that the, the patients that are included in the study are perhaps not super complex, not super high risk. Uh, so I think that's an important factor. 
And the other thing to say is that the um, the lesions that were included in this study by angiographic assessment, and we know that's very limited, QCA we know is, has limited fa- uh, reliability, uh, was generally very severe. So they were all on the whole more than 70% uh, by QCA. So the lesions were not mild or moderate lesions. These are severe lesions. And although the headline, and if you read the abstract, they'll say, oh, they used FFR. Uh, the actual reality is, if you look at the supplementary data and you look at the, do a deep dive into the data, actually FFR was performed in very trivial number of cases, according to the, the graphics I've seen. Uh, and so it was only performed in if your stenosis was between 50 and uh, 70%. Um, and so that ac- accounted for less than 1% of, of the patients. So a very small number of patients actually had fractional flavorism. So this was predominantly angiographic revascularization. And what they showed was in a cohort of patients uh, that were followed that the uh, time to um, uh, that first cardiovascular death or new MI was significantly separated by quite early on. You start seeing a separation in the first year alone, and then it widens out at three years and at five years. And we see a hazard ratio of 0.74 in favor of complete revascularization. And it was highly significant. Um, and if you start including uh, uh, repeat revascularization, then obviously the, the outcome becomes uh, even stronger. But as I say, that's potentially a, a biased uh, endpoint. I think if you follow Cardio Twitter and you see these things, I think there are two camps. There are those that think that this uh, study is amazing and that we, we should believe it wholeheartedly. And those that say, well, actually, all you're doing is swapping periprocedural um, troponin rise with uh, uh, other type of MI. I don't think that's actually true. If you look at the data very closely, uh, there are a significant reduction in STEMI patients, uh, and that's got to be a good thing. If you look at the, at the data very clearly, uh, the, the type of MIs that we see that are being prevented are mostly type 1 MI, so true MI with plaque rupture. Uh, and uh, there is a big number of NSTEMIs, and I'd say an NSTEMI is important uh, because it leads to hospitalization, increased cost and STEMI, which is uh, life-threatening. So there is a a reduction there. So I'm not a naysayer. I think this is true. I think this is an interesting study because it goes back back to what we learned in PRAMI. PRAMI had a lot of limitations, but this study basically tells us that if you present with an acute coronary syndrome, if you present with a STEMI, then you have probably multiple areas of plaque rupture. And whilst on the whole we fix that by giving antiplatelets, potent antiplatelets, that actually if we perform revascularization, we probably reduce events as well. Now, that will obviously come with the risk of periprocedural events and increased cost and increased uh, cath lab usage. But uh, if you roll this out internationally, if you're reducing STEMI events, then that, that's going to potentially be a, a, a useful um, useful factor. So I, I, I think I'm in the camp that says complete is a, a good study and is certainly helpful. Um, and, you know, there are variable opinions on this, but uh, I'll be interested to see what, what you think. Yeah, you know, so thank you for uh, a great summary. Um, so I have a question and then, you know, I'm going to share with you what, what we've been doing at our institution. But what is the what is the proposed timing of revascularization? I mean, you know, STEMIs, I mean, not all STEMIs are the same. You and I know that. I mean, there are STEMIs yes. which, you know, you're done within 30 minutes and then there are STEMIs which you're struggling for three hours and that there's no reflow um, yes. or there's complex yes. anatomy. 
when, yes, for when sure. is, and obviously these decisions need to be individualized, like we've said for, you know, all the therapies that we've discussed here. Um, but when, when is the typical timing for you to intervene? So the, the study data tells us that actually, as long as you intervene, at, you know, within a sensible period of time, and I think they allowed 45 days, uh, which is fairly generous. Um, I think uh, they, they found there was no real difference of whether you did it immediately, whether you did it during the index admission or up to 45 days later. So that gives us a breathing room and it says, look, you know, we can allow the patient to go home. We can allow the patient to recover. I think it's important to allow uh, the infarcted territory to recover. Because what you don't want to do, say, for example, you've got a, a prox LED STEMI, there's been uh, a large troponin rise, there's been some cardiac uh, impairment as a consequence. I think it would be a terrible shame for you to then uh, potentially have a complication in the right coronary artery and therefore uh, really render the myocardium at risk uh, because two territories have had a hit. So if you can um, defer it for a short period of time, allow the drugs to work, I think that probably makes things better. And a lot of the STEMI patients, they're de novo presentations. They're not known to have coronary disease before. Uh, these patients typically haven't had angina uh, before. They, many of these patients, about half the patients, have never had angina. And so uh, it's not like these other stenoses were uh, immediately requiring revascularization. So you have a bit of breathing time. And then you can get high-intensity statins in. That seems to make a difference to uh, uh, the angioplasty and, and the plaque that's there. And perhaps can make your subsequent repeat PCI easier to perform. But of course, the reality is you have to individualize care because this isn't, there is no uh, one size fits all in this situation. And I think if you've had a very straightforward STEMI, I think, you know, you've, you've doing a, an OM vessel, for example, uh, that was occluded and you've opened and you've got a, a stenosis in, 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 a, in a mid LED or a distal LED or something like that, then why burden the patient to have to come back in and have a second procedure and you feel that you can safely perform it? then you know, I think that's reasonable. But what we typically have before we, before we do um, our STEMI cases is we, we have access to echo. We all carry our own little echo machines, portable handheld echoes. Plus we have uh, echo machines in the cath lab. So we will uh, image the ventricle as the patient's going onto the table. And so get, uh, get a good idea of what LV function is. And if the LV function is good, then I think you've got time to play uh, for opening up any other other vessels, if LV function is looking less good, then you might want to uh, you might want to wait. Yeah, that's it's fair. It's it's very similar actually, and you know, it's it's very similar to what we do. Um, you know, we usually stage the the residual um, uh, lesion, and uh, we would try and do it. Um, you know, during the same hospitalization, if you know the LV function is normal, and you know there's mm -hmm. wall motion in the area of the culprit, which which is not a surprise. Uh, we'd rather just get the patient back and take care of it before the patient leaves the hospital at times. We would just do it in the same sitting if the STEMI has gone by very quickly. And, you know, you have that, you have the guide catheter up and you have the wire up and all you have to do is just swap the wire and put it in the next vessel. We've done that. And yeah. that's that's gone well. But then, you know, there are other STEMIs where you know the, the 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 shock is imminent and impending, and 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 you've just revascularized the proximal LED, and you know you've yeah. just you've just get out a decent get, out and get the drugs working. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, completely agree. So um, so talking about let's talk about Excel now. The five year data which was presented at TCT, uh, and there's a huge Twitter controversy on it. 
Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, this this uh, got a little bit out of hand. I felt, and I I, I feel sorry for Greg Stone, who who was um, you know he's a prominent investigator, and he was getting uh, hounded um, by by uh, some some people on Twitter, which perhaps was. Uh, Really uncalled for, uh, and uh, perhaps unfortunate. So the the, uh, the I think many of the readers or the listeners will will know. Uh, so Excel was a um, a randomised study looking at patients with uh, left main uh, stem disease and randomising them to uh, intervention with a Zients uh, drug eluting stent or to traditional bypass surgery. And they looked at uh, composite of death, stroke, and myocardial infarction. And the primary outcome uh, was powered for a three-year uh, outcome. And the, at three years, there was actually no significant difference. And then what we find is, as you go out to five years, that there is a swapping of the uh, curves and that there is a higher event rate in the PCI arm, uh, such that the primary endpoint happens in 22% of people. And the bypass event rate is somewhat lower at 19%. Uh, and so there is a clear three-point absolute risk difference in favor of bypass surgery. And I think this is something that we are honest about. And we say, look, there is uh, a, uh, a benefit for bypass surgery. And there's no doubt about that. Um, and But I think some of it comes from the way that perhaps the paper was written. And there is a particular style of, that New England Journal requires and and the phraseology and i think it's i think um professor stone has been absolutely fair i mean they use the terminology that the outcomes are similar they're not saying they're the same uh and statistically they're uh, they're not different but of course we recognize that there is a a limit of power uh when you go out uh, to this to to five years um and what it happened was at the uh, at a major surgical meeting um i believe it's called eacts uh a, a an author and a collaborator and study member of the executive team, uh, Professor Taggart, who's actually a, a British uh, cardiothoracic surgeon who works in Oxford, um, who who came out very strongly against the study and, and had announced that he had removed his name uh, from from the paper. Uh, and he's on the, obviously on the original manuscripts, but ha, has removed his name from the five-year data. And this then triggered uh, a number of people to really uh, challenge Professor Stone and suggest that there'd been some kind of uh, uh, attempt to uh, confuse or to alter uh, the endpoints by perhaps changing the definitions of myocardial infarction. I think the difficulty come whenever you're designing a study of you have to set a couple of endpoints and trying to define how you're going to uh, define myocardial infarction uh, is an important factor. And the surgeons felt that the outcome had been designed to put them at a disadvantage because we know that bypass surgery is typically associated with more troponin rise and CKMB rise. And therefore, in that early stage, you are going to get a higher event rate. Uh, but we also know that cabbage is associated with a higher stroke rate. So, uh, and, and that's been shown time and time again, and we saw that in this study. Uh, and we also know that PCI is limited because there will always be a higher um, revask rate. So if you perform PCI, because there is a degree of stent failure, because you're doing it in the left main, if, it, if a patient ever presents with chest pain, then you're more likely to take the patient back to the uh, cath lab. And as a syntax uh, and even the Syntax 2 study has shown that operators have a tendency to 
so-called touch-up the stents they've done. So they will uh, naturally drive um, uh, ischemia-driven revascularization in, in these cohorts of patients. So we understand that there are differences. But I think the overall findings of the study to say that in the modern era, with modern techniques and modern stents, that we can give patients an option. Uh, and this is not to say that this is the right option for all patients. And uh, I refer many of my patients for bypass surgery. But I would also say that we get a lot of patients back from our surgeons. So if you have patients in their 80s, where patients who, who've got complex comorbidities, that the surgeons uh, are unhappy to take uh, to theatre. And as a consequence, uh, we have to perform PCI. And I would also say that there are, uh, you know, whilst the lemur is an excellent graft, vein grafts are generally not very good. And we often have patients who have had had bypass surgery, sometimes I think perhaps too early uh, in their in their journey. And then they come back to us in five years with really now complicated anatomy where vein grafts are closed, native vessels are closed, and we as interventionists are left with incredibly complex disease. And so perhaps if we can have a paradigm that we are trying to uh, avoid bypass surgery as early as possible and then perhaps consider bypass surgery later and there, there, there must be a sweet spot uh, where we can kind of give patients an opportunity to to you know get life through without having their chest opened and then perhaps have surgery at a later date which will then ride them through for the rest of the year I think we don't have the data to support that but this is a kind of feeling that I've been coming to so I think Excel was a, a good study it's well performed I think doing these studies are naturally very complicated there is a huge degree of negativity over it. There is a clear separation of death. There is a higher death rate with PCI. And I think there's no doubt about that. We, we're, we're not going to try and hide behind it. But I can say that for for many of our patients, uh, the ones that we end up performing left main PCI for, they are having it because uh, that is the uh, the best option available for them, uh, not because we're you know trying to avoid them having uh, an operation or something along those lines. Yes, I, I agree with you. I think, um, you know, it's unfortunate when it becomes a, a competition between the surgeons and the interventionalists. It's it's never meant to be that. I mean, I think we're all, we're all here to take care of our patients. I think we all are passionate caregivers. We, we, we go to our places of work with, with the purpose of doing the best that we can for our patients. And I think as long as we remember that, as we're stepping in Either to the operating room or to the cat lab, I think, I think it'll it'll all be fair. And I completely agree with you that you know we get a lot of patients back from our surgical colleagues actually, you know, who are reluctant to take them to the operating room, and and you know we end up revascularizing them percutaneously. And you know yeah. the goal really is to to deliver the best possible patient care. Yeah, we need the surgeons, and they and they they need us. I think we've all been in situations where patients have had early graft failure. Uh, and they need uh, early revascularization percutaneously. And equally, we've had situations where the anatomy is so complicated and the risk of complex atherectomy uh, may be uh, too much. And um, we've got some stalwart surgeons who say, look, you know, why, why are you going to break your back doing a complex PCI when we can do a straightforward uh, bypass operation? Um, equally, uh, for, I think for those who've ever worked at the Hammersmith or places like Harefield, um, we'll know that we have these meetings, we call them the JCC meetings, or the, uh, they're a heart team meeting, where I would say that there is vigorous debate, shall we say, uh, to put it politely, between uh, interventional cardiologists and uh, cardiac surgeons. And uh, sometimes there can be genuine um, 
uh, falling out between people. And I would say there's really no need for that. Uh, I think we're, we're all drowning in coronary disease and patients coming in with acute coronary syndromes and ischemic events. I think uh, there's enough work to go around. I think we should take the opportunity to try and uh, foster a supportive environment for our uh, surgical colleagues. And uh, I think sometimes they feel within the TAVA era uh, and where with PCI and people becoming so confident with PCI that they're going to perhaps be somewhat threatened I, I think they should feel satisfied that they are going to do uh, complex cases that need bypass surgery and uh, we are going to do cases appropriately. And I think that's the, uh, as long as everyone feels comfortable, there won't be that falling out. Yes. And, you know, let me, let me ask you this in, in, in passing as we move on to, um, you know, AHA and, and, and wrapping the podcast uh, is how frequently do you, you know, in real world scenario, is it mostly just visually driven and um, uh, or is it very objective when it comes to scoring multivessel disease? And do you pull out the computer screen and do a syntax score or? Yes. Is it... <laughs> so we were a syntax two site and uh, we definitely uh, and we work very closely with Javier Escaned, who's a, a, a major uh, contributor to syntax. And Patrice Royce uh, has has. Um, um, become an imperial professor and so we uh clearly do calculate the syntax score i would say the majority of the time we are not calculating the syntax score uh using the formal methodology uh our process of revascularization is incredibly physiologically driven we uh every patient will have had ischemia testing before they get to the cath lab we then do on table invasive physiology and our surgeons expect it uh and in patients we present at our heart team meetings without physiology, they ask us, why didn't we do it? Um, and uh, and sometimes we say, look, look how severe it is. And they just turn around and say, well, didn't you tell us uh, that you can't tell by the angiographic appearance? And and they're absolutely right. So we, we do a lot of invasive physiology. And so this is the way we tend to practice. And so this means that if you look at the ripcord study, if you look at uh, the uh, R3F study and, and uh, the hilariously named ISIS study, I think this shows that if you start using uh, physiology on a routine basis, you will alter your understanding of coronary disease. And I think you will realize that lots of patients who you think can have PCI actually need to go for bypass. And similarly, the patients who you think need bypass actually need just a straightforward PCI to a single vessel. And so uh, I suspect that this is really one of the reasons that uh, we don't end up uh, matching or uh, besting bypass surgery in a lot of the cases, because actually we're simply stenting either the wrong vessel or within the vessel, the wrong stenosis. And I think uh, interventional cardiologists, certainly from a previous era, perhaps were too proud to admit this. And this has led to this constant uh, situation where our studies end up being negative and and you know I think we should be very careful as we go forward in how we do these studies um, and to select our co patients well to make sure that we're uh, targeting the right lesions using intracoronary physiology and imaging uh, and it all goes together uh, not to say one is better than the other but you know using the combination of the two uh, to make sure we're selecting the right patients for revascularization. Agree. Excellent summary. So uh, I don't think we can end 2019 without uh, talking about ischemia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well, there is technically only one study in 2019, and that is the ischemia study. All other studies basically failed to exist afterwards. So, uh, yeah. I mean, what what are your thoughts on ischemia? 
listen, you know, I think, um, you know, I think there was a Twitter storm about it and it was all built up and, you know, highly anticipated, obviously, yeah. for obvious reasons. So, uh, you know, my, my take on, on ischemia is as follows. I think, you know, if you were to think of how modern cardiology was being practiced, at least the way I was practicing it before ischemia results were presented was, you know, I think Orbit had had a had had significant role to play in it was, you know, if, if patients come to the office and are otherwise very functional and have stable angina, um, and it was, uh, you know, they had a stress test. Most, most of the patients would have had a stress test anyways before they would come and see us. Right. Is that a, a treadmill, an exercise test? or? Yes. Uh, yeah. It will mostly be uh, a combination of an imaging and exercise. So for functional capacity, and they would have either have an echo, most likely. Okay. So you could actually see, you know, baseline left ventricular systolic function, uh, and you would see the, the quote-unquote area of myocardium at risk or percentage of ischemia. Okay. And then if it was, so for example, inferior hypokinesis, which was inducible, normal at rest, patient has stable angina, I would, I, I would actually start that patient on, you know, statin, aspirin, anti-anginal therapy, and discharge the patient from clinic uh, with close follow-up in about six weeks, six to eight weeks, and see how that patient's doing right. on, on medications. And if, you know, at that point, it would really become uh, a shared decision-making process whereby if the patient was like, yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, and, and these, gr- granted, these medications come with a lot of side effects. I mean, we don't, we may not realize that as prescribers, but patients hate taking beta blockers because it it just it causes a lot of fatigue. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think um, I, I think you're absolutely right. So I mean, the, this is the thing. So the the concept of ischemia is really a really good idea, and I think it's amazing that they were able to do this study. I, I think there are some caveats to it, and I, I think we're going to pick over the, the this study over the next few months to years, and there'll be. Those that say, look, we told you so back in 2007 and courage showed essentially this. And there'll be those that say, look, there are these flaws. So the, the, for, for the listeners, I think that the principal idea was that you had to have stable angina uh, and then you had to have had uh, an ischemia test that showed moderate or severe ischemia. And uh, these were read by the individual recruiting centers and then uh, overread by a call lab. And that's interesting in itself because that's a huge amount of work. Um, and the, the idea was patients were randomized uh, early before coronary anatomy was known. Okay, so the reason they did this was to uh, avoid this situation that once you see a stenosis, uh, once a patient knows there's a stenosis, there is a problem. Okay, and we've seen this in multiple studies. Uh, and uh, in Orbiter, we, we went through a very complex uh, blinding algorithm in which uh, the patient didn't know, uh, operators weren't involved in follow-up, but the cath lab staff and the nursing staff weren't allowed to t- tell the patients and they weren't given cath lab reports. Even the primary care physician wasn't told. So we went through a very complex process of blinding in order to be able to achieve that. So uh, to try and get around this issue of once patients know about stenosis, uh, it, it can cause problems. So in in ischemia, they randomized after a CTCA had been performed. And the reason they included the CTCA uh, is complicated. The reason was because there was concern that patients with left main sten- stenosis would be missed. Uh, 
Uh, and some would say, look, you know, a truly a significant uh, left main stenosis isn't going to be missed on uh, stress testing of, of some kind. And I've actually seen lots of cases where that, that's not the case, where um, uh, where left main was missed by non-invasive testing. And so um, I think that that's an important factor. They undertook CTCA and then they randomized patients. And, and the randomization is actually to conservative therapy with medication. Uh, and then only for cath if, if there is a failure, so increased symptoms uh, or unacceptable symptoms or un- becoming unstable or an immediate invasive strategy. And I think this is where for us in the UK, it becomes a little bit difficult because uh, the time it takes for a patient to be seen in clinic, be sent for a ischemia test, see the ischemia test, come back to have follow up. Uh, have medication started, and then maybe decide for an invasive cath is long. It's really long in the, on, under the National Health Service uh, compared to in the US, where I suspect you'll be doing this within a matter of days. Mm-hmm. And so I would say the majority of, uh, and perhaps, you know, there's a large number of patients recruited in India, uh, where there is a thriving um, uh, uh, middle and upper class who seek healthcare. Uh, and invasive uh, options very early. And so I would say that the time from diagnosis ischemia to cath is short in many countries, whereas in the UK, it's actually pretty long. So we already know that the majority of patients are absolutely fine uh, before um, if they're having a long wait. We already know that. I think there is a concern around the world that if you've got severe ischemia on a, on a functional test, then you've got to get to lab, otherwise these patients are at high risk. And so that's the first thing I would say that in the UK, we come at it slightly differently. Um, plus, you also have to remember in the UK that there is a great level of conservatism. I think in the US, I saw on Twitter, there is a drive for so-called conservative medicine. I think if uh, our, our colleagues in the US who are espousing that came to the UK, they would appreciate that actually what we're practicing on the whole is already in keeping with that process. So um, what they then found was they follow these patients up, and if you follow them up for uh, major events, what they found was no real difference uh, out to five years. They found an interesting phenomena where there was an increase in early MI in the invasive cohort, which were likely to be periprocedural infarctions. And then going out to five years, and the, the streams cross over around three-year mark we see an increase in MI in the conservative cohort. And, uh, but overall, it balances itself out and there isn't a statistical value uh, to the, the, the strategies being tested, so the invasive versus uh, conservative. There's a couple of points, though, I think that are really important for people to understand. And I think this is um, super important for people to appreciate. This is being sold as a stenting study, and that's simply not true. The first thing to say is that if you look at the invasive cohort, so it's two and a half thousand patients, of those patients that went to the cath lab uh, that was in the so-called invasive arm, only 80% of them had revask, okay, of any kind. 20% of these patients were completely deferred. And in that cohort, 66% of them, so two-thirds, were deferred because their arteries were essentially unobstructed. So that means that this is a failure of both the uh, ischemia testing and the CTCA, okay, because CTCA was blinded, but the CTCA had suggested there was at least a 50% stenosis. And therefore, in a good number of patients, and I've done just kind of uh, calculations of these, so this is around 350 patients actually had normal vessels and so didn't have any stents. 
And 33% of the cohort that was deferred, so around 170 patients, actually had coronary disease that was too severe to be treated by any kind of technology. So that so they had no treatment. So that's important. And then in the so-called uh, revast arm, uh, there was only 1,500 patients that actually had PCI and 538 patients that had bypass. So, uh, uh, and if you look at the numbers, it's the way they're presented, it's 74% of patients had PCI, 26% had CABG. And uh, if you look at the total cohort of patients in the, in the uh, immediate um, invasive strategy arm, we're looking at around 60% having PCI and 21% having bypass. So this is not truly a stent study. I think that's the thing to, to, to take home. And you know that actually, if you look at the slide deck and you look at the DAPT arm, and you look at how much DAPT usage there is, it peaks at around 60%. And it doesn't go to uh, 90 or 100%. And I don't know of any interventionists who will be prepared to put drug-eluting stents in without giving DAPT. So that tells me that actually uh, this is not a true revascularization study. So in fact, what this is a way of looking at it is that this is a study of looking at the ischemia testing that gets patients in front of a cardiologist and then takes them into the cath lab. And this shows that actually there are limitations to this technology. There are a lot of patients who were screen failures that didn't have coronary disease. There are a lot of patients who were uh, failed at the CTCA point who didn't have anything significant. So that tells us that actually a lot of the ischemia testing that's done uh, is not that helpful. It's not that useful. And it perhaps isn't identifying the right thing. And so I think we should probably look at the type of ischemia testing that we do. Uh, and then we should also look at the, the number of patients that are in the conservative arm that end up having some form of revascularization and intervention. And that's not a trivial amount. So out of five years, it's bordering on around 30%. So that, that's quite a large number of patients. And I th think that therefore will limit the power of the study to be able to find an a, a, a answer to the question. But I think it's realistic because I think if you manage patients medically, I think you can therefore say to a patient, not that you're going to have no events, not that you're going to be absolutely fine. You can say, look, at five years, there's a 30% chance that you'll end up having to have further revascularization or coming into the cath lab. Uh, but that also means there's a 70% chance that you won't. And so patients can then make a, a shared decision with you in, in how you're going to do it. So I'm, I'm, uh, I look at ischemia in a slightly different way. I think it's looked at, you know, the medical therapy arm guys are saying, look, this is the death of coronary intervention. The interventionists are looking at the, the MI rates. Uh, I'm not sure we can interpret a huge amount yet until the papers come out and we understand this stuff more deeply. But we can certainly say uh, that when we treat patients with medicines, it's mostly safe in stable patients, particularly when they've had ischemia tested by current conventional means. So uh, I think 25% of these patients just had exercise testing and the others had uh, nukes, which in the UK... Uh, uh, not that common. Uh, we use a lot of stress echo and a lot of stress MRI. And we've got very good data to suggest that if you don't have ischemia on stress MRI, you know, the patients do very well. Uh, and similarly with stress echo. Um, and so I, I would say that, it, you know, the, the meme is that cardiologists are saying that it's not going to change their practice because they're already practicing this way. I'd say in, in relatively conservative countries like the UK, where we are already uh, less um, how can I say, stentastic uh, than in some other countries, then it perhaps is already a little bit like what we're already doing. Um, 
whether this study gives credence to the CTCA pathway uh, is less clear. I mean, it wasn't scientifically tested or designed for that. But certainly, if you uh, look at the data and say, well, CTCA certainly excludes a lot of patients, and it certainly stops you doing a lot of unnecessary caths, I think that is a positive finding. And I think we should now interpret CTCA in a different way. I think if you see a 50% stenosis, I think I won't worry about it. I won't send those patients off for functional test uh, because I would say, well, the majority of these patients are fine. So I'm just going to give you medicines. I'm going to give you treatment with aspirin and a statin and potentially a beta blocker. And I'm going to follow you and see how you are. The difficulty we have that perhaps you guys don't have is that uh, our payers will not pay for follow-up. And so many of these patients have to be discharged back to primary care. And our uh, primary care physicians, our GPs, are under a huge amount of strain already. And there is a real crisis in the UK of uh, staffing primary care. And so I'm not sure whether we can truly balance this issue out in the UK. I think those who say, oh, it's easy to give um, uh, optimal medical therapy uh, have perhaps not followed patients and tried uh, getting it into them. Uh, for a very long period of time, uh, and you know they they will understand how difficult it is. As R Russia will tell you from um, the Orbiter study, uh, where there was a very aggressive uh, escalation of medical therapy, uh, it can be quite tricky. Patients do get side effects; they do require lots of reassurance and manipulation of the doses. And so, I think there is a situation where we can come away from this study where we think it's really helpful. I think it does change practice. It certainly slows down. We definitely don't need patients going to the cath lab within hours or days. I think you can take time. I think you can take time to up-titrate the medications. Uh, and you can reassure patients that they aren't going to have a, an adverse event in the form of death uh, in the near term. I think that's super important. I think that's a, a really helpful finding. Um, I think another important factor, I don't know if you guys were a recruiting site for this. Uh, we tried to be a recruiting site at Imperial, but we really struggled. We had a number of conflicting studies. We had Orbiter. Uh, we were doing um, the various IFR studies, including uh, Define Flare and then Define PCI and a number of other uh, different studies. Um, so we had difficulty recruiting into this study. Um, but it, it's interesting to see that the, the centers that we're recruiting into the studies are perhaps not the, uh, the, the kind of centers that you routinely think of um, around the world. There are centers from all over the world. And so it does truly reflect general cardiology as practiced around the world. And so I think we should sit up and pay attention to it. Yes, no, excellent summary, uh, Sokai. This was uh, very well summarized. And um, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, there are, obviously there are differences in in how patients get seen and throughput and, and reimbursement. And um, I think that's going to be different for different countries. But the overarching message for the study, at least to me, was uh, which is exactly what you said in your concluding sentences that, you know, it's not imminent for patients with abnormal stress echocardiograms to be rushed to the cat lab. Um, I think uh, that to me was uh, an overarching message. I agree that uh, I think uh, the computer tomography scan to define the coronary anatomy is going to have a new role. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, the study wasn't necessarily designed to come to that conclusion. And I, I think there's going to be uh, a drop, and there should be, rightly so, a drop in unnecessary stress testing, which 
you know, has has been going on for a while, at least in the US. Yeah, well, we, we are horrified when we hear, I mean, I, I occasionally have patients from the US here in London and they say, oh, you know, uh, I get my yearly nuke. Um, and, I, <laughs> and I'm like, what? Why are you having that much radiation exposure? What is it possibly telling anyone? Um, and you know, you may you may not even have coronary disease. Why is anyone doing this? Uh, and this is a historical fact, and this is just based on how things have grown. Uh, there are places in the UK that perform nukes and pets. Uh, we've ditched it. We don't haven't done it for a number of years. It's uh, in highly uh, selected patients now. Uh, nice guidelines changed in 2010, and we have essentially got rid of exercise testing for the majority of patients. Only use it. Uh, to assess uh, response to intervention or, you know, for risk stratification, aortic stenosis or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We don't use it for the diagnosis of coronary disease. And so we've already moved away from those uh, older fashion tests. We use CTCA a lot. I think it's useful in de novo presentations. I don't think it's that useful in patients with established disease. I don't, I don't think it should be used for monitoring. It's definitely not useful in patients with previous stents, although I know the newest scanners are better and better uh, I, I just don't feel that uh, it adds that much. I think there are there's a degree of protectionism. I think in the UK, uh, CTCA uh, has been really pushed by cardiologists rather than radiologists. I know that's not necessarily the case uh, in, in the US and even in the UK because CT usage has gone through the roof. It means that there isn't enough cardiologists to be able to report all these scans. So we've certainly got uh, radiologists who are interested in the cardiovascular space who really specialize in this field and we work really closely with these guys and get incredibly good scans and the scans I think should be used for where they have value the negative predictive value so a patient doesn't have coronary disease or it's only mild or I would say even up to moderate now I would now say that that basically gives us reassurance that we don't have to do a lot of testing uh, yes I think we should give them a statin if they've got confirmed disease confirmed plaque Yes, I think they should probably have aspirin. I think that I know the primary prevention data is mixed, but there is clear signal in the reduction of myocardial infarction. And if you've got confirmed soft plaque in an important territory, I, I personally want to take aspirin. And so, you know, I think you know we've got basically a new paradigm for the uh, in, uh, for the future care of these patients. And then it means that we aren't wasting time in the cath lab doing normal angiograms or angiograms where the disease is mild, and we say, you know, great you don't need anything and the patient is relieved we don't have to have that moment we can focus on doing more complex things and doing it well i think the the problem is i don't know what it's like in in, in your particular lab but uh in in our lab when i was uh coming through in the early days it was just a pressure to get volume done and you'd have you know 15 cases on the board for each lab and you would be trying to get through them some of them would turn out to be normal. Some of them would have complex disease, and, but it was a race to get everything done before the end of the end of play, uh, plus all the ACS work. And I would suspect that that meant that the intervention performed was not the best it could be. It didn't have uh, the a level of optimization that it should have had, as we've now learned is super important. So I think that the onus is on us as interventionists to make sure that we do a good job, uh, such that we we uh, are doing the best for our patients and making sure that the intervention is as, as perfect as it can be. I agree with you. I think um, you know I, I've said this before. I think um, I think the the CTCA, the computer tomography scan, is a, is an excellent gatekeeper uh, for the cath lab, and you know it should be. And I I, I don't think um, you know old fashioned stress testing has done a good job in being a good gate good gatekeeper for the interventionists. And I think. 
um, you know, moving forward, like you said, it's it's going to be an important paradigm and um, and and technology that will be used more often um, in in screening patients, so that we can do uh, the cases that you know need us the most. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely, and mm-hmm. and and you know, I I think although we really congratulate. Uh, uh, Professor Hockman and David Maron, who, who really led an amazing study, we do uh, recognise that there are limitations. I think 25% of patients are coming with exercise testing is a limitation. Uh, there is a high burden of diabetes, which is good because we want high-risk patients. Um, so thank you, Sukha. You know, thanks again for making the time uh, for this podcast. Uh, this has been uh, a fascinating discussion wrapping up 2019 for our listeners. Um, any concluding thoughts? Um, on um, 2019 and then how you foresee cardiology being practiced in 2020? Well, um, Anka, thanks so much for inviting me. I, I, I think the when you look over all this data and you understand how complex cardiology is becoming, I can understand why people sometimes get bewildered and um, don't know how to add this data into their routine clinical practice. And I think that's the most important thing for us as practitioners and the listeners out there who want to actually apply uh, these really interesting data into their routine work. And, and that's really hard. And I think true evidence-based medicine, I think people forget that evidence-based medicine is not just doing what the trial did, but is actually looking at the trial, bringing it into your uh, healthcare system, looking at it with what the patient wants to do, and uh, and adding all those three elements together to be able to reach an answer and a conclusion. I think that's super important. I think people uh, sometimes get uh, a little bit um, fundamentalist about uh, the application of RCT data. And I would say that the absence of information doesn't mean that something doesn't work. I would say that if something is uh, negative, then we should respect that and, uh, you know, and not ignore it and not just keep doing the same thing all of the time. Uh, but I will I will say that healthcare systems are slow to turn and slow to move. Uh, we, as a group of people, I would say, are relatively nimble, and uh, we have the opportunity to put these things into in, into our routine practice. But we have to steer the overall ship. We have to force uh, healthcare systems that you work in, the hospital that you work in, you know your cath lab directors, your chief of services, your uh, medical directors to try and integrate some of this information to to help our patients best. Um, I think the key thing is that there's more studies than we we know what to do with, and they sometimes conflict, and we have to basically muddle our way through. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, I think it just, uh, you know, the world of anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapy and and revascularization is, is... is a complex one to navigate considering the amount of data that have recently come out. And, you know, I think, you know, that's why, you know, conversations like these just real-time conversations between two colleagues, you know, bringing in patient care and, and our challenges, and I think uh, is, is to me at least a useful platform for learning, um, oh, for sure. you know, for, for, for our colleagues and f- even for each other, you know, I think it's, yeah. And, and uh, so I, I, I am struck by how, good uh cardio twitter has made my experience uh over the last few years particularly when i go to conferences it means that whenever i go to a conference i will now run into somebody who 
I feel I know. Not not because I've ever met them before, not because I've ever spoken to them or even emailed them, but because their face comes up on my phone sometimes several times a day. And whilst there are flaws with uh, social media and there are difficulties, I think it is intrusive. I think it does uh, lead to people misunderstanding each other and perhaps being less uh, gracious as they should be. I think the real thing it does is breaks down barriers. So uh, we, for example, got speaking in the faculty lounge at TCT and I ran into so many people at all the various conferences this year that I would never have spoken to had it not been for, for Twitter. And then I think medium like this podcast, I think we all do long commutes. We're all traveling long distances. I think we all have an opportunity to sit and listen uh, and learn while we're doing drives or using the uh, transport systems. And so I, I think that this is a underappreciated um, uh, media. And I think, uh, I think the job that you're doing with podcasting and having conversations and understanding where people have come from is really important. Uh, I, the conversation you had recently with Greg Stone was absolutely fascinating, you know, understanding his uh, progress through um, his, his career, because we see him as a monolith, right? We see him as this this guy who's on the podium at TCT and is directing all these massive studies, but he's like you or I, and he's come from a certain place and he's progressed his way through. And, and that's absolutely fascinating. And I think it's inspiring for for cardiologists of all ages to see to have experiences like that. Yes, no, you know, I'm just thankful for the the opportunity that that I have through this medium, um, you know, to reach out to colleagues like yourself, um, to educate myself, uh, and in the process, you know, help others get educated, um, and you know, just just strike these conversations uh, amongst colleagues, seniors, you know, peers who. You know, we we read their papers and we know all about them. We know about all about their professional lives, but I think it's it strikes a different chord. And I, it, it, like you said, it makes all of us more relatable uh, when you know someone comes out with personal stories of how they became who they are or who we know who they are. Um, so I, you know, I, it's personally been very fulfilling and gratifying for me to to record these uh, episodes and bring them out. And you know, thanks to colleagues like like you and uh, and several others who have been very very gracious you know to to us on on twitter uh in in sort of um helping us um spread the word about the podcast um because you know i i certainly thought that this was a great medium for me to learn um so we just extended it and i hope it keeps growing you know in 2020 yeah. and, and we can for sure we can have more, more meaningful conversations i look forward to it well, thanks again, Suk. Um, if I don't get to speak with you um, before Christmas or New Year's, uh, very happy holidays and season's greetings to you and your family. Thank you, and you too as well. For all those celebrating Christmas, uh, Merry Christmas to everyone, and uh, hope everyone has a very happy New Year. Thank you. I will speak to you soon. Take care now. Bye. Bye-bye. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. 
You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.